1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised God has chosen, the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, and righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that, just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and power." so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray for uh, the message this morning, God, that it would be directed, focused on your word, that our hearts and minds would be directed toward you, Lord, and that we can come to a better understanding of what is this wisdom of God, what are the things that God chooses Verse the things that the world calls wisdom and strength and honor. And so, Lord, I pray that we are encouraged and convicted by the word and that we are strengthened, Lord, to go out and boast in Christ, Lord, to this lost and dying world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's be seated. So we'll do a very quick recap And that, by that I mean super quick, which is that uh, two weeks ago now, when we were in the verses just before this 17, 17 through 25, we were talking about this idea of uh, wisdom that was different uh, from the world. There's wisdom of God and there's wisdom of the world. And... Um, that actually leads us into our passage this morning because Paul is actually continuing his thought. Believe it or not, verses the end of verse 17, I should say, through chapter 2, verse 5, is Paul's defense of his preaching to the Corinthian church because the Corinthian church has had their thinking shaped by the world. And so they expected a certain kind of wisdom or a certain kind of preaching from Paul that's filled with lofty speech and philosophy. And instead what we see is Paul actually defends his preaching and ends this defense with vulnerability and a confession of the way he came to them. And in order to do this, I bring this up before uh, with other passages, but I love these when I see them. There's a chiastic structure. If I see it, I'm bringing it up. I'm just telling you, it's, I, I can't get enough of them. 
But what this is, right, is this is the way that Paul had written it out so that the argument that he ends with in our passage of chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, mirrors what he begins with at the end of 17, which is, I didn't come to baptize. I didn't come to preach with lofty speech. I came to preach to you Christ crucified, not with this kind of wisdom of the world, not with this sort of philosophy that you're expecting, lest the cross be made void. Right? Then there's B, which is 19, 29 through 31 for us down here, those who boast, you who are in Christ, and 18 through 19, those being destroyed, we who are being saved. He's opposing, and he quotes uh, a passage from the Old Testament there from Isaiah, and then he quotes a passage from the Old Testament here in uh, B as well. So, um, really, the, the reason I bring this up, too, is because the center point of the argument is what is most important, which is that he preaches Christ crucified. That's G right there. So if you look, A, I preach the cross. G, preach Christ crucified. A, I preach the cross. He's developing this argument in defense of why he comes the way he does. Why does he come without lofty speech? Why does he come just simply bringing the gospel and relying on the power of God to do the work? The reality is God doesn't need our best arguments. God doesn't need our refined speeches. He wants us to rely on his power in humility. And that's exactly what Paul has done with the Corinthian church. Paul's not trying to impress anybody. He's relying on the power of God. And so we kind of pick up in the second half of his argument here, starting in verse 26, where he says, Consider your calling, brethren. Now, Sometimes when we hear that, our first thought is, you know, what's my calling in life? You know, sometimes we think of a vocation. Um, sometimes we may think of um, just kind of what we're designed to do, what we're designed to be. I feel called to this. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. That's not the kind of calling. He's talking about the effectual calling of God. Consider that you have been called by God. And he's specifically talking in this context about your salvation. You have been called by God. You have been appointed by God. You have been selected by God. Before the foundations of the world, he called you to himself. And you, if you are in Christ, you responded. And that's the calling that Paul is saying. You need to consider this. And we're going to look at some application about how to do that uh, towards the end here. But we need to kind of set the stage of why we should consider this calling. Paul says, Consider your calling that, not, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. See, when it comes to worldly standards... There's no level playing field. When you look at wisdom, when you look at strength or might, when you look at nobility, not everybody is privileged with these things. Does everybody have wisdom? 
No. In this case, the wisdom of the world, the wisdom of the flesh that Paul's talking about is this ability to uh, understand philosophy, rhetoric, logic. Two of those, most people you talk to might not even know what they mean. Is everyone gifted in these ways? No. Some people are just simply better thinkers than others. Is everybody strong and mighty and athletic or a good warrior? No. No. I think a lot of us guys, maybe we had dreams growing up of being professional athletes. And I think we quickly realized that that's not going to happen. Not everybody is privileged in this way. Was everybody born with money or nobility? No. Right, so even according to the world, we, we, not even all of us are privileged in these ways. In fact, the majority of us aren't. It actually makes me think of a, a funny story um, that a friend of mine, David, told me, and uh, I, I hope I don't butcher it, because then I'll hear it from him. But it's this story about Henry Ford. Okay, we're talking about nobility here, right? Henry Ford did not come from old money. Henry Ford is new money. For us, that's old money. It's a long time ago. But at the time, it was new money. And so Henry Ford wanted to get into this country club in Michigan. I think it was a country club, but it was an elite club. And because he was new money, even though he was richer than everybody in the club, they wouldn't allow him in. So Henry Ford responded by saying, okay, then I will buy the land and I will build a highway right through the club. And he got a letter uh, accepting him in the next time around. The reality is, is, you know, when Paul says, you know, it's people born with nobility, like there's, you can't even gain nobility a lot of times, right? It's just it's something you're born with. It's something you're privileged with. Even Henry Ford, with all the money that he was able to uh, accumulate, still did not, in the eyes of these men, have the kind of nobility But that's the worldly reasoning, right? That's worldly wisdom. And Christ overturns that. God instead chose the foolish, the weak, and the word here is actually the ennoble. Verse 27, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. So let's take a look at this. It reminds me of Matthew eleven twenty-five and 26. At that time, Jesus says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for the way for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. See, I want us to take a step back, and I want us to actually look at the way that Paul talks about foolishness and, and weakness and inability from a positive light. Because this is something we all recognize that on a worldly level, right, the majority of us may not even fall into any of these categories, but most people, right, they, they certainly don't fall into all three. So in the, in the worldly perspective, we're not mighty, we're not wise, we're not noble, 
But let's look at this. Let's start with foolish here. I want to say that what you actually need to recognize is that you are foolish, you are weak, and you are ennoble. And that's a good starting point. The first thing is, we must recognize we are foolish. We are fools who were born into darkness. The Bible contrasts light and darkness throughout Scripture. Light is this idea of knowledge and revelation, and darkness is this place of ignorance or foolishness. Christ brings light. He says in John 14.9, uh, sorry, Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of God's glory. John 14.9, to see Him is to see the Father. Apart from the Son, God cannot be known. See, the, the thing is, the Scripture, when talking about Jesus Christ, uses this imagery of light. You can see Him and see the Father. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the light of the world, right? But we were in darkness. Ephesians 5.8, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. In John 12, 46, Jesus has come as the light so that all who believe in him will not remain in darkness. You have to know that you are a fool. We have to know that we, apart from Christ, are fools grasping for life in darkness. The Proverbs tell us this too. Proverbs 3, 7, do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear Yahweh and turn away from evil. Proverbs 26, 12, do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than for him. Now, what does that mean? The danger of being a fool in darkness is if you don't have the light, you don't think you're a fool in darkness. You think you're wise in your own eyes. And it's actually better for a fool than it is for that person because at least the fool recognizes that I'm a fool in darkness and I'm brought into the light. Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to man, but its way ends in destruction or death. And then Jesus, capstoning this in John 9, 41, says to the Pharisees, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But since you claim you can see your guilt, Remains. What do the blind live in? Darkness. You have to recognize that you, apart from Christ, you, I am a fool. I am blind. Not only am I not wise according to the world's standards, I'm not wise, period. I need to recognize that. And recognizing that is actually the, the starting point of true godly wisdom. Okay, how about weakness? God chose the foolish things. God chose the weak things. This word here is interesting because it's, it's not weakness like you can't lift enough weight. This weakness is actually a kind of weakness that is used of those who have fallen short of God's glory. The weakness is actually used throughout the Old Testament. In the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's used for stumbling and falling. The word for weakness is this idea of falling into transgression. 
So we must recognize in our weakness that we have fallen short of God's glory. Psalm 9, 1 through 4 says, I will give thanks to Yahweh with all my heart. I will tell of your wonders. I will be glad and exalt in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble, same word, and perish before you. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne judging righteously. Psalm 31.10, For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength has failed. Same word there. Because of my iniquity, my body wasted away. This idea of weakness is actually used for judgment of those who have rebelled against Yahweh. We need to recognize not only are we fools in darkness, but that we are weak. And that God's power is made perfect in our weakness. God will not use those who think they are strong. Those who are good, those who are righteous. No, God has called the sick. This is why Jesus says, I I didn't come here to heal those who don't think they need a physician. I came to heal the weak, the sick. We have to recognize that apart from Christ, we are weak, we are sick. We have transgressed the law of the Lord. And the last one is God has also chosen, finally, the ennoble, the insignificant, the despised. Well, this one, think about this for a second. You have noble according to the world. And if you take kind of this classic understanding of nobility, right, you may have even some medieval kind of movies come to mind where a knight is someone who is, you know, in nobility and you can't just become a knight. You have to be born into this nobility. You can't just, it's not like a society where you can earn your way and work your way to the top. We were not born into nobility by the world's standards, right? And we certainly weren't born into nobility by God's standards. And the reason why is because this idea of, in, of uh, being insignificant and despised and ennoble, the word is actually the opposite of uh, verse 26, that not many are noble, is that we are wretched sinners living in rebellion to the king of kings, See, there is nobility. There is heavenly nobility. There is eternal nobility. And that nobility belongs to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But we, instead, we're not born into nobility. We are born into rebellion. And just like the medieval knights, you can't work your way into nobility. We have nothing to offer the king to say, make me noble. Proverbs 17.11 says, An evil man seeks only rebellion. Therefore, a cruel messenger will be set against him. We are naturally immobile because we are rebels against the one true king. But this is what John 1.12-13 says, To all who did receive Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, 
nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The new birth is noble birth. You are a child if you are in Christ and you have been born again. You are a child of the King of Kings. You become a child of the Lord of Lords. Your new birth is a birth into nobility. Not a nobility according to the world standards, but the only standard that really does matter is God's. And you are born into nobility according to Him. You become His child. So the first step in godly wisdom is recognizing that we are fools in darkness. We are weak and stumbling before the Lord and transgressing His law. And we are ignoble rebels to the one true King. But the good news about all that is the fool who knows he's in darkness recognizes the light. The weak who knows he is stumbling in his transgressions recognizes when he is pulled out of that, when he is lifted up. And the despised and ignoble recognize when they are born again into noble birth. Verse 29 through 31, Paul says, So that no man, God has chosen these things, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that just as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So Paul's concern with this is you need to recognize these things. And the reason why God has chosen you in this way, he only chooses the foolish and the weak and the ignoble, so that when we go before God, there is no boasting literally in the flesh before God. We cannot boast in anything that we have to offer because we don't bring wisdom to the table, we don't bring strength to the table, and we don't bring nobility to the table before God. Christ is our everything. Christ became our wisdom. And the wisdom of the world then becomes foolishness. Christ became our righteousness. And the word here is also justice. We cannot bring justice before the Lord. We cannot bring righteousness before God. Christ became our sanctification. Literally, holified. The word here is hagios. It's holy. Christ is what makes you holy. Not anything you have to offer, but before the Lord, when God sees you, He sees His Holy Son. He has become our redemption. We owed a debt to the Lord, and Christ is the one who paid that debt. And this is why the cross is the power of God for those who are being saved. Because those who are being saved recognize who Christ is. They recognize what Christ has done. And therefore, they recognize that there is nothing that I can boast in. Anything that we have is not from us. Anything that we bring to the Lord, any good work, in Christ that we do has already been prepared beforehand by the Lord. We bring nothing to the table to boast in. 
And so we boast only in Christ. Now, this might sound weird, but I'm going to say that not only should we boast in Christ, but we must boast in Christ. And this is not arrogance. Boasting in ourselves, that's arrogance, that's pride. But instead, we are boasting in Christ, and we must do it. Our, because it is our boasting in Christ that destroys the wisdom of the wise. And it is our boasting in Christ that destroys the strongholds and brings people to Christ. As people see, this man, this woman, they are not about themselves. They are about Christ and His glory. They don't take credit for what they've done. I don't see arrogance and pride in their life. In fact, everything they do, they direct back to Him. They direct back to the Lord. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, the ending of Paul's argument here. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit of power. So that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So Paul again draws his focus away here from this clever speech. He's drawing it away from, from lofty rhetoric. You know, as we look at this passage here, I want us to recognize when he says, Paul says, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. See, the human heart is infinitely deceitful. And so the reality is that there will never be a reasonable argument for Christianity that cannot be uh, combated. Now, don't get me wrong. I believe there are great arguments for Christianity. I believe they're true. The point, though, is, is I can't make you believe that. I mean, how many times have you been in a conversation, even if it's not about the Lord, just with a, a conversation with somebody who's so stubborn that they're not listening to what you're saying? You know they're not right. You point them to the evidence. You point them to the truth. Your argument is logical and sound. You've thought through it. And yet, they're still, it's like a stone wall. Okay, but this is how it is with the gospel. We can have reasonable, good arguments for Christianity, but the point is, is that's not what's going to make somebody come to faith. And it's not wrong to have those. Except for the fact that if we rely on those, Paul's saying is that you're not relying on the Word of God, the power of the Spirit. You're not relying on uh, the cross. We are saved by grace through faith. We are not saved by reason. We're not saved by science. We're not saved by proofs or evidence. Salvation comes through preaching, not signs, not rhetoric. Look back here at our chiastic structure, and this is why I left it. The Jews seek signs. The Greeks seek wisdom. Paul preaches Christ crucified. It's not about signs. It's not about 
rhetoric, which is why to the Greeks it's foolishness and to the Jews it's a stumbling block. Paul, with a posture of humility, relies on the Spirit and power. Now, sometimes this can mean miracles, the power of the Spirit, the signs of the Spirit, maybe. But in this context, that's not what Paul's talking about. See, because Paul had already just said that Jews demand signs, and Paul's ministry instead has been a stumbling block to them. Why? Because he just relies on preaching Christ crucified. I knew nothing among you except for Christ crucified. And since that's a stumbling block to the Jews, it must not be about signs. Instead, Paul is resting in the work and power of God, not the power of man. I want us to think about this here with another time that God had saved his people. And look at the parallels. God saved his people Israel from slavery to Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, bringing them to salvation and victory through his Passover. Today, God saves his elect people from slavery to sin and death with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, bringing us to salvation and victory through the final Passover. In Egypt, God worked through his power proclaimed by Moses. Today, God works through his power, the power of his gospel proclaimed by his church. See, the proclamation of the gospel is powerful language that shatters human beings because it's the same word of God that spoke creation into existence. And therefore, it's the same speech that makes people shudder and change the world and become born again. And we Christians have been given that speech. See, we don't need to rely on the rhetoric of the world. We don't need to rely on the arguments of the world. We don't need to rely on the philosophy of the world. Because we have been given the same speech that created the world. This is what Pentecost is about. That the tongues of fire came upon men, the disciples of Christ, his people, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Right? This same spirit that Paul talks about in 2 Timothy, that is not a spirit of fear and timidity, but a spirit of courage and power. It is the word of God that changes the heart, that creates a new man, that creates a new woman. So it's the words, it's the word of God that changes things. It is the power to those who are called by God and it is foolish to those who are perishing. So let's look at some application points here then. The first, going all the way back to the beginning, is you have to spend time considering your calling. You must take a good look at who God is and then who you were and who you are. 
God is perfectly wise. He is totally mighty, noble, and holy. And we are fools grasping for evading truths to comfort our own rebellion against him. Think about that. We are, apart from Christ, we are, the world is foolish, seeking for pleasure, seeking for comfort while living in rebellion, while living in the dark. We were weak, ignorantly thinking that we were strong. How many of us, apart from Christ, thought we were strong enough to withstand a temptation? How many of us, apart from Christ, thought we were strong enough to make it on our own? How many of us in Christ were strong enough to live up to a certain moral standard that we had set and yet failed again and again? We were ennoble. But before Christ, we acted like we were ruling our lives. See, the ennoble world that's at rebellion against God thinks they rule the world. Just like when we're in rebellion against God, we think we rule our lives. We think that we are sitting on the throne of our lives. We have to recognize who we were. We have to consider the calling. What were the depths that God had called us out of, right? And so now instead we take time to consider this, that the Lord has created you. Every fiber, every atom, every molecule, he formed you and brought you into this world. You didn't have creation power. The Lord has spoken to you. He has given you his word. He's given you the Bible. He has sent his messengers to bring you the word of God, to call you closer to him. Every week when you hear the gospel, every week when you come into church, every Wednesday when you come to Bible study, you hear the word taught and you hear the word preached, it is an opportunity that the Lord is calling you again, calling you again. And for those of you who have come week after week and you're still not submitting yourself to Christ, it is the Lord calling you. He had sent his messengers. And the Lord also has given you power, right? You were weak, but now you've been given the spirit of power and courage. He's given you purpose. Life had no absolute purpose before the Lord. Life's purpose was what you tried to make it be. But now your purpose is to worship the Lord and bring him glory and honor and obedience. The Lord has given you a mission. Decisions in your life were up for grabs. What was your calling? It was that whatever you thought at the time it was. It could feel random. But now your mission is set. In Christ, your mission is to be an ambassador for him, to preach his message to the lost and to disciple the saved. And the Lord has given you an inheritance. See, apart from Christ, you had hell and God's wrath is your eternal reward. Now you will reign with Christ over the new heaven and new earth and life, glory, and peace are your eternal reward. 
So you need to consider that each day. Each day as you wake up, you consider your calling. You consider who you were before Christ. The foolish, lost, weak, ennoble people that we all were. We consider that call of Christ and the beautiful things that he has done for each and every one of us by making us new. And then we need to be constantly boasting in Christ. Now, some people may think, well, I'm not a preacher. And I would say, oh, yes, you are. You may not stand up here at the pulpit and preach, but the, world, the word here is to proclaim, to be a herald. You are called to proclaim the good news of Christ as you boast in him. You are called to boast in Christ to your neighbor, to your coworkers, to your family, to your friends, to strangers. You are called not through random acts of love or kindness, but through the deliberate calling of God for the good works that he has called you to, that he has planned for you. So you boast about what God has done and is doing in your life. Right? This, this is a couple more minutes. But this is important. Sometimes when we think of our testimony, the first thing we go back to, and maybe it's something that we do over and over again, is we just say that time way back when, when we were saved. But this Wednesday... Right When we gathered together, we had a good time talking about current testimonies. We were boasting, not just in what Christ had done way back when we were saved, but we're boasting in what Christ is doing in our life right now. And for some of us who came up here, it was through struggle and hardship that we know that God is in the process of redeeming. But we boast in the Lord to our family, our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors and strangers, not just what he had done, of course we continue with that, but what he is still doing now. We boast about what God is doing in this world. God is reshaping this world. He's making it new at a cosmic level. We boast in that. You have been made into a new creation. You have been brought into the new creation. That God is still working. It's not complete. He will return. Our hope is in that. But we boast in the fact that we recognize that Christ has won the victory. We don't live in fear. We don't live in what ifs. We boast in what God is doing at a cosmic level. Because we are the only ones who actually know this. We have been brought into the light. Then you boast about what God can do for them. I, was, I, I, I would never say it this way, but part of me is like, you want to get in on this? I mean, this is good stuff here. People are going about their lives looking for hope in all the wrong places. And the clearest picture to me is when I'm outside Planned Parenthood and I see women and men going into abortion thinking there's hope inside this death camp. And I say, there's no hope in there. There's no rescue in there. It will not relieve you. The hope, I always say, is on this side of the street. It's to those who are calling out to you with the gospel and the love of Jesus Christ. 
But we need to be confident in boasting that we have the answers to hope because it's the word of God, right? We, we have that. So we boast in that. We share that. Do you want in on this? And then we boast when our character aligns with that preaching. So there is a vocal boasting, but there is a, uh, also a boasting that happens when the way we live aligns with the hope that is within us, right? When we live in a way that reflects that Christ really does reign in our hearts. So to close here, you were not saved because of your wisdom or strength. You weren't saved because of evidence. You weren't saved because of some great lofty argument. You were saved by the power of God's word through his messengers that he had sent to proclaim that. And you are kept by that same power. You are kept by God, not by your own strength. You are kept by God because of his power the same power that makes dead men alive. And so let me just say, if you're trying to live on your own wisdom, if you're trying to live in your own strength, you will fail. Maybe not in this lifetime, but eternally, you will fail. So put your hope in the wisdom and strength that comes from Christ. Come to him in humility. Right? Do not turn away when he has called you. And now that as we go into our uh, time of communion here, um, I just want to say that as uh, Pastor Keith had said last week, you know, when we come and take communion, this is this is the table for believers. If you are living according to your own wisdom and your own strength and your own nobility and you haven't submitted yourself to Christ yet, then I would just call on you to do that now. I'm going to pray. And as I'm praying, I'm going to call on you. If you don't know Christ, you are not willing to submit yourself to Christ or haven't yet, that today's the day. Leave behind the wisdom of the world. Leave behind the strength that you think you have and come to the Lord. And then you can partake in this table with us. And I'd also say, as I'm praying, that this table is also reserved for those who have clean hearts before the Lord. So if you are living in sin, if you are living in unrepentant, unconfessed sin, then as I'm praying, that is your opportunity to bring those things before the Lord, to confess the sin that you may have, and to repent so that you can come to this table and celebrate with us as well. And so let me pray for us. And then as I'm praying, um, if Ed and Greg come up to dismiss the rose, and we'll do that again together. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, that you have chosen us to be saved, not because of anything that we had to offer you, Lord, but because you delighted to do so. I pray, God, that as we come to communion now, that it would be an opportunity for us to first confess and repent so that we can come to this table with pure hearts, Lord, that are cleansed, not harboring any sin, 
not harboring any guilt. And Lord, I also pray for those who are in here this morning that may not be born again, that may not have submitted their life in allegiance to Christ, Lord, that this would be the time that they would do it. Lord, that by your word you would supernaturally work in their hearts. Bring them to their knees, Lord, to recognize the glory and peace that comes from you and you alone. We thank you, Lord Jesus. We thank you for your salvation, your redemption, your righteousness, and your justice. And Lord, may we boast in you all the days of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.